0: Welcome to the Expert Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. I'm Abby Strauss, and thanks for listening. I doubt there is one person who has never been faced with the choice between taking a generic or a branded medication. There is a common sense that generics are equal to the brand name medications, but many people will say that they can feel a difference between when they are on a brand versus a generic. Joining us today is Dr. Pierre Billet, the director of the Mood Disorders Research Unit at the University of Ottawa's Institute of Mental Health Research. Dr. Billet, thank you so much for being with us.
1: My pleasure.
0: Because we are talking about active treatments, it's important to state that our role here today is merely to explain things and not offer any treatment recommendations. Any questions that you may have as a patient about any medication that you are taking should be discussed with your physician because all treatment decisions have to be made on an individual basis. We may, however, give you some good ideas to bring to your doctor. Okay. That being said, there are many aspects to understanding the differences between generics and branded medications. Let's start with some simple definitions. People often hear the term bioequivalence. Would you be so kind to explain that to us, please?
1: Certainly. these regulatory agencies accept a generic medication to go on the market, they must have in their possession bioequivalent study. And basically, they have to compare their generic medication to the brand. And to do this comparison, they usually study from a minimum of 12 healthy volunteers, male healthy volunteers to 24, or sometimes a little bit more, the plasma levels of the generic and the brand medication. So the two parameters that they have to meet is first of all the, what we call the CMAX. So the maximal concentration achieved in the plasma. And that value must be between 80 and 125 percent of the brand. So you are allowed a certain variation. That's the first parameter. The second essential parameter is what we call the area under the curve. So that means that they do repeated sampling of the medication and they measure the plasma level, the absorption phase, the maximum phase, and then the elimination. And this, what we call area under the curve, so that's the surface under the plasma levels over time, also has to be within 80 to 125% of the brand. So you have to meet these two criteria. For some slow release or constant release preparation, the same requirement may also apply in the Tmax, so that means the time it takes to achieve the maximum concentration in the plasma. So if a a generic medication meets these two or three requirements, then FDA, for example, will accept this generic medication on the market. But right there, you can see that there can be a great variability. So the absolute variation can be as much as 45% because one batch to the other of generic may not have the same physical chemical properties and therefore may be absorbed differently.
0: So are you saying that if someone goes from a medication made by company A to a medication now made by company B and they're being told that it's the same medication, in fact, they may be very different doses or that even within the same company as they go from one batch to the next, it's a different dose?
1: Exactly. Yeah, because what happens is that a pharmaceutical firm, whether it's a brand company or generic company, will say produce three million tablets of a medication in one batch. I don't know how long that's gonna take depending on their market size, but at one point they're gonna have to resynthesize their lot, so that's gonna be a different batch. So each batch actually should be tested in the lab for physical chemical properties before they throw it on the market. So the bioequivalent studies done in healthy volunteers is not repeated every time a company does a batch, it's only done at the beginning. And let me make one more clarification concerning these bioequivalent studies. So for a brand medication to go on the market, they only have to show one positive study, that is, it's going to be between 80 and 125% of the brand. And before, for example, they could like, they would maybe need three, four, five studies to get a positive batch, I mean, a batch that would meet the requirements. And I believe now that the FDA is requiring these the generic companies to provide the results of all the bioequivalence studies that they've provided to see what is their reliability in producing a medication that is similar but not necessarily identical to the brand medication.
0: Is that variability clinically significant? Do people have to worry about it?
1: Yes. The short answer is yes. And to give you the best example, there are very few neurologists who will accept substitution, go from a brand to a generic. For example, when they're treating epilepsy, because here, a lack of control of the disorder can be very spectacular. And you can imagine, for example, that if you've been seizure-free for two years, you would probably get your driver's license back. And if you get a destabilization of your epilepsy and then you have a seizure while you're driving, could, uh, kill, you could hurt yourself, kill yourself, or hurt or kill somebody else. So they don't play around with this type of medication, but it can be as severe for other medical conditions and including psychiatric conditions.
0: We had a similar case many years ago when a antipsychotic known as Clozapine went generic and the differences were so great that people were relapsing. So there actually was some legal action to insist that people have access to the brand name medication. I guess this is what you're talking about.
1: Exactly. Even within that legal, if you want, quote unquote, variability of 80 to 125, like you say, it can still produce some clinical complications. But what happens, remember, is that every batch can be different. And some generics, and actually we published a paper last year in the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry, where we saw that the Teva venlafaxine was actually bio to Effexor, XR. We caught them with a CMAX at 151% when the, the maximum should only be 125. So what's happening is that obviously some pharmaceutical firms are putting the generics on the market which don't even meet the bioequivalency requirements. So that can even be worse.
0: This then takes us to the notion of the therapeutic window, that we are supposed to get drugs into people at certain levels, and we predict how much the level will be based on our experience with what we should dose a person, allowing for individual differences, of course. But now we see a situation where the therapeutic window may not be met because a person is going from a branded medication to a generic or from one generic to the next. It can be very confusing.
1: Absolutely. In psychiatry is lithium. So lithium is a very narrow therapeutic window because if you go too high, of course you can get intoxication. So imagine let's say that a patient is put on lithium and he or she has say a one meg per liter level, plasma level for let's say in bipolar illness. And this medication let's say provides an 80% compared to a brand of lithium so now when they go to another brand they go from a preparation that would give 80% of the brand now they go up to 125 so that 1.0 mech per liter level will become toxic because it will be 45% higher
0: you keep referring to the FDA and we're assuming that's the FDA in the United States how is it outside of the United States how is it in Canada is it similar
1: yes it's the same, but the Canadian government is a bit more lax because they don't necessarily require the 90% confidence uh, conf- uh, intervals of confidence. But basically, it's the same in the US and the European Union.
0: All drugs have two basic components the active molecule and a vehicle. The active molecule is a therapeutic entity that we're trying to get into the person, but the vehicle is another chemical entity that carries the active molecule the generic drugs, do they differ in the vehicles as much as they differ in the doses of the active drug?
1: Oh, absolutely. The the vehicle, what we call the excipient, can be totally different. So, for example, you could have a patient who has, let's say, an allergy to one of the excipients. So, if he's been on the say a brand medication or even a generic and they go to another generic so the excipient can be different and for example it it happened to me in my practice the lady for example who had lithium in the past and responded well and so when i went back to the lithium she had a different brand and she ended up having an allergic reaction which we figured out was due to the tartazine in the in the excipient so yes the excipient can make a big difference as well
0: It seems that in the last couple years there have been fewer and fewer new psychiatric medications in the research pipeline. Eventually we won't have many new ones as selections, as options. And so a lot of people will be going to the generics. This makes me wonder what's going to happen because there is such variability in the generics. We often use the analogy that a company like McDonald's spends a lot of time, a lot of money to make sure that their product tastes the same wherever you go, anywhere in the United States. But it doesn't seem to be the same with medications.
1: Exactly. Well, since you're in the, into uh, food, let me give you an example. When you go to the grocery store, you have a lot of no name products. And they're supposed to be the same, right? But they're cheaper. So that's what your pharmacist tells you when he offers you a generic medication. It's the same, but it's cheaper. Well, we know they cannot be exactly the same because they have this 80% to 125% variability. But, you know, how many people do you see leaving the grocery store with a basket full of no-name products? Very few people. Why? Because your taste will tell you that sometimes they are different. And it's not worth the uh, what they save from the no name to to the brand company. So your taste tells you. In the case of medications, and let, let's let take an example outside of psychiatry, but let's say you have hypertension. Like most people, when they have an increased blood pressure, they have absolutely no symptoms. Their pressure shoots up, but most people don't have side effects. But the high blood pressure, of course, will take a toll on your on your system, on your arteries, and so on, will damage your plumbing, basically. And you may not know about it because if you've been stable for a long time, you may not, you may not check your blood pressure. Well, it's the same thing in, in, in psychiatry, actually. So when somebody uh, gets destabilized, you know, it's like if you're treating a mood disorder, they'll say, "Oh well, well, you know, they've, they've been facing more stress and that's why they're relapsing. But when I see one of my patients relapse, the first thing, first question I ask is, have you been taking your medications? Because don't take me out of context antidepressants don't work if they stay on the shelf. And then the second question I ask is, what have you been taking? You know, has there been a change from a brand to a generic or even within a generic? And then after that, I would look at other aspects. But these are the two basic questions that should be asked.
0: Quite often, it's required that a person changed from a branded medication to a generic or perhaps from one generic to the next because perhaps the pharmacy changed. They're just getting it from a different supplier. What sort of guidelines are there, if any, that a person should follow when this transfer to a different medication occurs? Are there guidelines?
1: Yes, they should be told that if there's any new discomfort, any new symptoms, that they should really discuss it with their physician. So they should be aware. They should not be told that it's, it's absolutely the same because there can be variability. Even within the same company, even if you don't change, there can be differences from one batches to another. That's very important to, to mention. And in fact, there is a, some kind of advantage in the U.S. because the insurance company is the one that will pay the bill for the medication, but will also pay the bill for additional physician visits if there's a destabilization of the condition. So it's the same payer. So you can't just turf you know, an economy in your purchase of medication to the patient visits like here in canada we have socialized medicine so some insurance company trying to push some of the people to take the generics because their bill for the generics is going to be lower than for the brand and if somebody has to go see a physician more psychiatrist more often they're not paying for that but actually the insurance company if the patient is out of work is going to be paying a whole lot if the patient cannot return to work because he or she has been given a bad preparation of a medication.
0: Interesting, interesting, because we've always had this sense that there was an absolute predictability, an absolute reliability on the quality of a pharmaceutical. If a company was going to make something that we were going to swallow, it was going to be of the highest quality and exactly as it was stated, but that's not the case. In so many ways, it's, it's scary now.
1: Absolutely, but what you have to remember, go back to your chemistry, so when you pres- when you synthesize a, a medication, it's not like baking a Duncan Hines cake, where you put the powder, the milk, the eggs, and whatnot, and then plop, one step, and you're done, you have your cake. When you synthesize a medication, it's several chemical steps. Each step has a yield, a percentage effectiveness in generating the proper product or byproduct, and you generate also contaminants or byproducts that you have to exclude and you know a chemical reaction can vary because you cannot say that you will be 100% sure that they're always carried out under the same conditions and then in the end may not even be chemical issue it could be a, a physical issue because if you prepare a tablet for example it has to be made with some kind of pressure So if the tablet is made with too much pressure, it may not dissolve rapidly or at the right place in your GI tract, and therefore the absorption can be changed. And for example, there's evidence in the literature from a few years back when they tested 31 brands of carvedilol, a drug for cardiovascular system, 11 of the the 31 brands did not meet the proper physical chemical properties, meaning that their dissolution rate was different. So there are so many things that can go wrong when you prepare a medication that you should really be concerned.
0: Fortunately, not all generics are bad, and we need to emphasize that. But if a person is switched from a branded to a generic or from one generic to another, and there are problems, the person doesn't feel right, something is wrong, then that needs to be brought to the attention of the doctor immediately.
1: Uh, absolutely. And just to, if you allow me to clarify my point here about the multiple step synthesis of medication, there is this antibiotic called Cefachlor that was produced by Lily, And I was wondering, you know, it had been on the market for many, many years and there was no copies, you know, when the drug, the drug could have been genericized. And I was wondering why there was no generics, because it was an extremely popular antibiotic. And somebody from the company told me that's because in the synthesis chain, there is an explosive reactant. And what happened is that they blew up a factory in India because of that. So that scared a lot of generic companies. And that's why it took a lot of years to actually have a generic for c on the market.
0: Along the same lines, I had heard that many years ago when a particular anticonvulsant medication went generic, that in the process of making that medication required that it pass through a step where temperature was very critical. And if the branded company didn't hit that precise temperature, they threw the batch away. I then heard that it was not uncommon for the generic companies not to throw the batch away or to offer a greater window of temperature variability. So we actually ended up with a product that wasn't as well made as the branded medication.
1: Yeah. And there's a lot of that. And and one of the reasons why they can do that, that the regulatory agencies don't have a spot check mechanisms. So there's never any inquiry, and, and of course, a brand company wouldn't like to put a bad product on the market because they can be easily traced back and sued. Whereas if if there's some kind of complication with a generic, a lot of people wouldn't even think of suing the company because you know there it, and it could be you know there could be many generics on the market. Sometimes it could even be difficult to be traced.
0: One of the recent trends in psychiatry has been the reformulation of older drugs. For example a drug which everyone once knew as Paxil, which was peroxidine hydrochloride, has come out now in a form known as peroxidine mesylate. And many of the insurance companies, many people will say that there is no difference between the two of them. But patients will report, however, that there are differences. And some will even go so far as to say that the side effect profiles are different. The point is that they are not the same, and too often they are being touted as being equal.
1: Yes, what you're mentioning, of course, is the salt of the actual medication, and you're right, the paroxetine mesylate is one that has a documented problematic track record.
0: Very, very, very interesting, also pertinent to the practice of medicine and also to the reality of being a patient, as one is shifted about through various formulations of medications. Dr. Pierre Bile is the director of the Mood Disorders Unit at the University of Ottawa's Institute of Mental Health Research. Sir, thank you so much for being with us.